2: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
3: Hello, and welcome to the news meeting. Every week, we bring you into the newsroom to hear the arguments that happen in meetings just like this every day. Which story should lead the news? What comes next? How do you decide whether a story matters and why? And then this week, what do you do when a story overwhelms you? The earthquake that hit Syria and Turkey has left thousands, possibly tens of thousands of people dead. How do you tell the story of a disaster on such a scale? And then, where does that leave the rest of the news? Three journalists are going to try and help me make sense of newsrooms when they face a story like this. Try and understand, too, where other stories, the stories that they're going to pitch fit into the broader picture of the news i'm james harding i'm the editor of tortoise and i've worked previously in newsrooms at the financial times the times and the bbc and my job as the editor is to try and make that news judgment so from podomo and tortoise welcome to the news meeting Of course, I appreciate there's also a lot of news closer to home. Perhaps we'll discuss that too. But I'm joined by three colleagues here from Tortoise. Liz Mosley is an editor at Tortoise. She has an uncanny habit of picking the story that leads the news, uh, perhaps because she's worked in so many different newsrooms. The Telegraph, Heat, L magazine. Maybe that gives you a broader sense of what people are really interested in, Liz. Uh, Keith Blackmore and I worked at The Times and the BBC together. Uh, The last time Keith was here, he did, of course, choose the story that uh, led the news, but not least because it was a story of our... Our own, Keith. Uh, and then Basha Cummings is, is an editor at Tortoise. Uh, she's the host of the Sloan Newscast and she's the reporter that brought us Pig Iron, the investigation into that line of moral responsibility of journalists on the front line uh, in a war zone. Um, Basha previously worked at the Huffington Post, worked on the Foreign Desk at The Guardian. Um, but I think it's your first time here It is in the news meeting. Welcome, Basha.
2: Gladiator's Rink.
3: As I said right at the top, This news meeting is different even from our own previous news meeting podcast. Normally, we always say, okay, each person brings one story. Everyone's got to pitch their own story and then comment, if you like, on the others. Given the scale of the earthquake, it feels as though we're going to spend a fair bit of time just trying to make sense of how you approach that story. But before we get there, why don't we just hear a quick reminder of some of the stories of the week?
1: A rescue operation is continuing overnight in southern Turkey and northern Syria after two huge earthquakes killed more than 4,300
0: people. Watch, 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 watch watch Buildings
1: crumble like sand. The giant Chinese balloon that had been floating across parts of the United States
3: has been shot down by an American fighter jet. If China threatens our sovereignty, we will act to protect our country, and we did.
1: It's now been 11 days since Nicola Bully, a 45-year-old mother of two, went missing
0: here in St. Michael's. If Nicola was in that river, I would have found her. I can guarantee you that.
3: You didn't compromise Ukraine, and hence, you didn't compromise your ideals. You didn't compromise the spirit of these
0: great islands.
3: Okay, well, let's have a go first at just the three different stories you think we should discuss this week. Liz long story short, yours in a line.
1: footsie hot one hundred.
3: footsie hot one hundred Keith offside in a hundred and twenty point. Massive. 120 point. Just if you're listening and you haven't had to put together a front page, which Keith and I have done before, 120 point is the size of the font, which you would use on a front page headline. 120 point is <laughs> is newspaper speak for enormous. <laughs> One simple headline which just says, offside, enormous, 120 point. Basha, what's yours?
2: Uh, catastrophe in Turkey and Syria.
3: Well, why don't we start there? It feels to me as though that's the story we've got to figure out how you handle it and I think it's quite interesting let's just frame it for a moment Mm -hmm. we're talking about now a story that as people listen to this they will know about it's been around for a week so part of the question you're thinking about is how do you say something that's informative and vivid about a story that is for many people far away and already on their consciousness so Mm. Basha how do you approach it
2: well I came with some props because I think there's a photograph that might help us approach it and i'll give you each a copy which is a photograph of a man uh called mesut hansa and he's sitting in uh, a pile of rubble he's wearing an orange high-vis jacket You might have already seen it online. Um, He's sitting in a city that's very close to the epicenter of the 7.8 magnitude earthquake that happened on Monday. He's got one hand in his pocket, but the other hand is reaching over into a gap between these two giant slabs of crushed concrete. And he's holding the hand of his 15-year-old daughter, Irmak, who's died. And he's sitting there. He's waiting for somebody to recover her body. And I think it's the look on his face. He's dazed. He's dazed he doesn't know who's coming to help he's just going to sit and hold his daughter's hand and I saw it and I think when catastrophes like this happen and you're a journalist offer you know you you train yourself particularly if you've been doing it for many years you can switch off that part of your brain that reacts emotionally but I have to say that when I saw this picture um this morning it really affected me. And I think a lot of people sharing it felt the same way. And I think it captures something about the humanitarian crisis, the fact that it is going to be so difficult to get aid these people particularly in parts of uh, northwestern Syria but also in parts of southern Turkey and I think that photograph captures the scale of the catastrophe facing the people there.
3: And what do you do Basha about catastrophe fatigue and I feel awful saying this but Mm. you can see already certain formulas in the way in which newsrooms cover this disaster the baby that survives but Mm. the parents don't or the parents that do but the child that doesn't the grandparent grieving for the relief that hasn't come and the worry is that the journalism that is supposed to make you feel actually leaves you with a sense of overwhelm
2: Mm.
3: and disconnect what do you do about that?
2: I think it's a really difficult question and it's a it's a tightrope that I think you walk as, as journalists and editors because you're weighing up the absolute need to show these images and to report because that is our jobs. It's n- not necessarily our job to keep people interested i think people regulate themselves based on how much they can consume Mm -hmm. i think this coming so soon after the war in ukraine not that that's over but is ongoing i think you can see that there is a high likelihood that people will try and switch off to protect themselves as much as, um, you know, I don't think it's boredom. I think it's just there is only so much horror you can tolerate. And certainly journalists that I've been speaking to over the last couple of days have themselves admitted that it is just horrifying. There's only so much you can take. However, I think that photographs like that, I do think moments where you see humanity, you see people really trying to, you know, there are I think the latest figure I saw is 80,000 people engaged in the effort to try and recover bodies mm. in Turkey. Mm. Another 2,500 white helmets in Syria. The, you know, I think it's hard not to connect with those lines within a bigger catastrophe to remember, oh, actually, you know, there are things that we can do. Um, and I think that's our job.
0: Keith? Well, I think Bash has put it all very well. It's, it's very difficult to argue against uh extending um, the coverage of this um, terrible disaster and um, I do think you're right I think inevitably there is some compassion fatigue this picture which is a brilliant news picture that um, will be familiar to anyone who's looked at newspapers at all in the last couple of days is, is you know is one of two really um, excellent but heartbreaking photos the other being the one of the little girl and her um umbilical cord you know to a mother that's dead before she ever saw her daughter um but and in the end it's get, it gets harder and harder to look at these things i think um you know i wouldn't i think that, that there is a moral imperative for serious news agencies to go on covering this as long as they can and to encourage people to put their hands in their pockets or to contribute clothes and so forth to the relief funds, but I also think there will be a tendency among people to want to move on especially as this is a long way away Liz, what do you think?
1: I'm reading a book at the moment which is called Stop Reading the News by a (laughs) chap called Rolf Dobelli I just don't know anything about it I picked it up in Waterstones and the the subtitle is A Manifesto for a Happier Karma and Wiser Life he hasn't convinced me yet, I've not finished it Mm. but this person's view is um, Nothing, and he's very extreme about it, nothing in the news, any of it, matters. And if something happens in the world that affects you in your life, you'll find out about it without buying a newspaper, watching the telly, looking at the internet. His sort of thing is, go cl- clean. And I think what we're talking about is that disconnect that you mentioned. And it's hard to know how to feel when you see this photograph that you've given out Basher and when it, you know that this story for these people it could be one year two years, five years, I mean it's not going to be finished tomorrow or anytime soon but it is hard to know what to do with that um, beyond as you say Keith donate to the relevant funds and what have you um, but still it feels important to care Mm. And how you can care if you don't go out of your way to look, I don't know. So just
3: being really... Let's, let's switch into a different gear, into the gear of the the practical newsroom when you see a story like this. Because, you know, the newsrooms that... Keith and I worked in the Times, I know exactly what we'd do. We would say, okay, you're going to clear pages one to nine. If you were working in the BBC, you would say, right, we're going to run the bulletin. We're going to extend the bulletin. We're going to go not half an hour. We'll ask for 40 minutes and we'll run 25, 30 minutes and we'll do all of the rest of the news just as a, essentially, a bunch of shorts at the end. But then you have a question, which is, what story are you really telling? How are you doing, if you like, that personal story? How are you doing the big picture overview story? And so, Basha, just if you were trying to give people the best understanding of the different angles on this, how do you approach it?
2: I think you have to separate out the dynamics that are happening in Turkey and in Syria. So in Turkey, already Erdogan is saying that people who are critical of the response are provocateurs. He's obviously facing an election in May. He will be trying to yeah, gloss over any kinds of failures in, in the emergency response. There are already quite serious questions about what happened to a... Um, Earthquake tax that was brought in in 1999, which apparently has raised or should have raised 3.9 billion to ensure that infrastructure was better prepared for um, earthquakes. But there's a lot of questions about where that money has gone and has it been used. So I think there is a very particular political dynamic within Turkey, which I would report on and and separate out. I think the humanitarian response, um what is happening among the civilian population, how bodies are being recovered, how people are, you know, there's now a a huge tent city um, quite close to the epicentre, how people are are coping. Um, It's also very cold, so there's a whole weather angle to this, which I think is inescapable. I think the question about Syria is very different because a lot of the places that have been badly hit in the northwest are rebel-held, which has a huge Question around aid, the um, border point um, from southern Turkey across into Syria, where the UN was distributing humanitarian aid, which millions already relied on because of the 12-year now civil war, that stopped. So already there was huge need within Syria, and that has now um, that will now only become more pronounced. Assad's regime has been already lobbying that aid will come through Damascus now, but the EU and the US have said they absolutely will not change their position on sanctions. So there's a political and geopolitical question around aid in Syria. Um, And I think, of course, it's a region that is incredibly complex. I think particularly in Syria, you cannot report on this or think about this without thinking of the context of the civil war. Um and, you know, looking at Aleppo, which can you imagine surviving twenty sixteen and the Russian airstrikes and the siege of that city only a few years later to see it completely razed by an earthquake. So I think there's a particular dynamic there that I think we should I would separate out too. I mean it's sprawling. It's enormous. It's enormous.
3: Keith, what would you any element to that?
0: Well, well I just wanted to I think the interesting question is this: uh, What's happened here is going to be unremittingly awful for weeks and weeks to come. You know, it's not going to get any better. It'll be horrible, and miserable, and distressing, um, and numerically probably quite shocking by the time we get to it. So, what point? I think any newsroom has to consider: what point do you begin to reduce your coverage, or? Place it less prominently. I think that seems to me to be a big issue. Now, yeah, I think it's quite easy to say. Well, actually, it's not. It's not this, this week. week. Yes, but <laughs> but it's but, not but, now. It's, but that de- but that decision, you know, yeah. is going to have to be made eventually. There's, there are two elements: of the compassion fatigue, isn't there? There's the
3: extent to which people fade away from the story, they can't keep looking. But there's also the question of the extent to which journalism itself switches people off. And one of the issues, if you go back to the refugee crisis, was the way in which that was communicated. And I just wondered, Liz, what do you think, one of the questions that any newsroom, not not an audio newsroom would face, but anyone that's looking at pictures will face is... A, the people actually in the newsrooms looking at those pictures, how do they deal with some of the things that are really, really deeply, deeply disturbing and the impact that has on people? But also, what choices do you make in terms of what you put on air or what you put in print or what you put on screen and the likelihood that children might see them or that you don't put the really vivid images on screen and you end up with something which is a rather anodyne version of what's really happening on the ground. It felt to me like this whole
1: picture, these people have already, some of them, been displaced, and then the earthquake comes, and then the winter storm comes. It felt to me like um, a visceral sort of future echo, because this is what they tell us is going to happen. The weather and the world, the planet... Mm is going to keep on doing this to you know tens of hundreds of thousands of people and somehow in the in the context of maybe that is the picture storytelling thing it feels to me like that's a way to help people to care about it beyond this desperate man holding the hand of his daughter you know
3: but
2: I'm not sure, do you think that that does because that then keys into another big looming catastrophe that also switches people off and I don't know if that makes the fatigue any
1: better well I'm about to pitch a BP profit story <laughs> episode, so.
3: let's have a good thinking about what happens to the rest of the news because it'd be interesting you know I think by the way just to be realistic if you were having a real news meeting on a day when you were the news was so obviously dominated by the earthquake. If you had a really good story, you'd probably put it in your back pocket and so say, I'll come back another day and pitch it then. Um, but, Keith, why don't you go next? Why don't you do offside?
0: Yes, well, I, obviously there's there's quite a big jump and thousands of people dying in uh, an earth, after an earthquake. But But I was going to propose that we look at the fact that Manchester City, the richest football club in the world, is been, has been charged with uh, with effectively inflating the books by the Premier League, and could indeed find itself being relegated or or um, docked points, which is an interesting football story but there are actually more interesting implications. What, what, what's the allocation of the Premier League? Well, there, 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 there it's 100... not proven, is it? There, no, 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 and City deny it all vehemently. Um, but the uh, there are 115 charges have been brought by the Premier League, which is not known for its dynamism in this department. <laughs> um, and uh, they're basically alleging a lot, of, uh, a lot of things. Some of them are just uh, non-cooperation with the Premier League investigation, but others involve paying one of their managers uh twice, once once through Manchester City and once through uh, a uh team in the um UAE. Um and um they're 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 really being accused, I think, of Inflating their revenues so that they can operate, they can buy more expensive players and make b- better and more efficient teams. Um, but but they're using money that really they probably have access to anyway. Anyway, so here's the bit I don't understand about this story at, o- at all. Is this is not
3: like you know there've been allegations in cricket, in boxing, in sports generally of of sports personalities throwing games and a kind of corruption on the field you know, largely for reasons of betting. I don't really understand what, if anything, is the connection between the allegations that the Premier League makes and the performance of Manchester City over the years on the field. Is there any
0: connection? Yes, there is. uh, In the last 20 years, football all over the world has um, been prone to being taken over by either very rich people or sovereign wealth funds. Mm -hmm. Um, um, And what happens is a sovereign wealth fund can invest in a football club without regard to whether or not they can ever make the money back they basically it's an exercise in self-power if true what it allows you to do is strengthen your team out of uh, out of any relationship to your training your, or your what you might call your organic football development you just it, it's it, it's not it, relevant it's anymore. sort of it's steroids for the whole team precisely that the, the issue that i have not mentioned here is that the, the government boris johnson uh, when he wasn't partying um actually noticed that there was a super league being proposed when a number of Europe, big european clubs including six from this country uh, decided to form a league which had no relegation or promotion and would have been largely dictated by money, but would have made a lot of difference financially to the European teams. Anyway, Boris Johnson decided that uh, that it would be a good idea for football to have a regulator and the Premier League in particular does not want a regulator. Oh, um, and they were due to announce uh, this week or, or reveal a white paper on this subject. And so there is a lot of suspicion that the That these charges were laid at Manchester City's door on Monday in order to uh, head that off and to show that the Premier League has teeth and can regulate itself. Obviously, if they don't, if nothing happens from all of this, that will seem. A futile gesture, but it, and it may it may indeed just be a coincidence. But it's a pretty striking one. All right, so Liz, as Keith knows,
3: you and I are locked in a battle <laughs> to show him who knows less about sport. <laughs> Let's bring our combined <laughs> wisdom to this one. What do you think of it? So
1: I think it's a legit story. <laughs> Thank you. So I do. And um, we've, we have, to be fair, we've, we've said before, football is important because lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people care about it. and And this does feel like it's a real story. I was really intrigued when I heard colleagues yesterday morning talk about that regulator aspect of it, because that speaks to what I imagine the Premier League is an t- entirely cynical self-serving organisation. That feels to <laughs> me appropriate n- knowing nothing about it.
3: No one from the Premier League was available to comment. <laughs> so just to say that. But,
1: <laughs> but I suppose it's a bit hard to get at. Like you said, are they actually cheating? You know, is anyone yes. throwing a match? That would be an easier story to get at. Yes. Um so if you're into football, I'm sure it's great. If you're not into football, you know, it's more fun thinking about Wrexham, if I'm honest.
3: Basha?
2: I may know even less about football (laughs) than the (laughs) (laughs) two of you Um, so yeah I agree with Liz I can't quite figure out is it scandal or is it just you know in a world where there's a ton of money floating around and a lot of hype and a lot of rich men is that just what happens?
3: (laughs) Liz, why don't we turn to your story and then we'll come back and try and make sense of what we do with other stories on a week like this. What's yours?
1: So I've gone for a pure journalism pick. This is a story that wouldn't exist if it weren't for the work of brilliant journalists and reporters. And the brilliant thing about it is that they work here at tortoise not me i would just like (laughs) to say it's other people (laughs) (laughs) who've done amazing things um and they they found um through their analysis of data um a, a way of solving a problem that moves something forward which is how do you tell whether big companies are keeping their word when it comes to their carbon emissions reductions and that's something that's kind of dogged us we've gone round and round a little bit trying to find out what it is and 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 basically um in the week that bp posts profits more than doubling um in the last 12 months to 23 billion and announced the scaling back of their ambition in terms of reducing their carbon emissions, quite a significant scale back, Um, it feels to me to be material that we've discovered this. And and in in, in essence, what the the data team here have done is they've looked at the stated goals, the the carbon emissions um, targets of the FTSE 100, and they've looked at what they have stated they have achieved thus far, and have turned that into a sense of a pathway. So given what we know the whole world has to achieve to hit the Paris 1.5 degrees of of warming by um, 2050, I think it is, are the FTSE on track to do their bit to achieve that? And in essence, no is the answer. Uh, 16 have set emissions targets that get them to 1.5 and are on track. So in terms of the 400, 16 are thumbs up. Um, 29 have emissions targets that only achieve... 3%, uh, three percent excuse me three degrees, three degrees. Um, and the problem is that in that bucket, the people who've basically done a sort of do nothing commitment, um there are there are really significant carbon emitters' shell. Rio Tinto, who until a couple of years ago I thought was a sherry company, um, and BAE Systems.
3: <laughs> we we're also worried about Tio Pepe's <laughs> yes, carbon footprint, exactly. absolutely. But but hold on a second, Liz, of the 29 companies, how many of them actually have a net zero 2050 target? I.e. the the gap between the, the talk and the walk is really interesting here, isn't it? That's yes. where the kind of greenwash problem really happens.
1: Yeah, so this particular piece of analysis looks at if they do what they say they're going to do,
3: where, Where are they, are they going to end up? To.
1: And, and you know, the 3.2 degree pathway is, as Alex Inch, our colleague up here who's done the work, is basically they've committed to doing nothing.
3: Basha, what do you think?
2: I think it's a great story. It's unsurprising. Like it's, maybe it's like the Premier League thing. It just, it's... Do you know what? That makes me feel more fatigued and depressed in a way I mean not than an earthquake (laughs) but like what what how how can you hold big companies accountable for their absolute lack of any care what do
3: you uh, you're not naive of course no I'm
0: I'm uh, I'm heroically cynical I think (laughs) and um another I think that's a great piece of reporting and it's a great story I can't help it just really kind of confirms my growing belief that you know mankind has built-in obsolescence And we just can't do anything about this stuff. We're going to, you know, destroy everything. And we we aren't capable of fixing it.
3: All right. Let's just stand back from these different stories. We've obviously tried to kind of get a little into how do you tell a story? What happens to the rest of the news? How do you think about the impacts on readers or audiences when you're dealing with a week like this? Uh, You know... I think we probably gave the game away right from the beginning. This was not a normal week where it was clear, you know, everyone was jostling for the top spot in the news. But just let's do a slightly different thing this week then. Assuming that the logical running order this week is Earthquake, BP, um, Man City, right? How would we run it? Let's say we had a half-hour bulletin, right? Let's say we had a half-hour podcast. What amount of time would we each devote to those three stories given this is a weekly show at the end of a week in which many people already know the news how would you have sliced it on those three stories keith i'll go with you first
0: well i think you're going to give at least half of it to the earthquakes and probably 20 minutes of the 30 would go to the earthquakes and i would think that, that you could easily give 5 minutes each to the two uh, the bp story and to the football story probably in that order and that it would that's sport naturally falls to the to the end of that sort of list basha
2: i agree with uh, keith 20 minutes on the earthquake but i would just tell one story i would find one person would because you? i think by then people will know the news they'll know the numbers they'll have they've followed the kind of breaking side of it i think whether it's finding that father and talking to him and just telling it in a much slower and more contemplative way that pulls it all together.
3: So by the way, let's just think about that for one second. So you said when you think about this story, you need to understand the complexity of Turkey versus Syria. Mm -hmm. You need to understand the humanitarian versus the political versus the weather. But actually, as a listener, you think a listener would most want to take one story and feel the impact of it through the life of... One person, one family.
2: Yeah, and I think that if it's if it's a if it's the right story, it will get you to all of those places anyway.
0: And also, there isn't isn't precious right. I think, and the, and the time for those uh, other stories is is coming. It's 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 to coming go. next week's bulletin, probably. Yeah. Liz, um, I
1: would probably do yeah, fifteen to twenty on the earthquake. If one story works in the medium, that makes sense. But I wonder if you might be able to do a little bit more. Um, uh, debriefing effectively because it's a weekly show with a first person account that isn't somebody who's been affected by it but somebody who's been reporting it from the beginning and you might get a little bit more of a sense of how things have developed new news you might be able to ask questions that are just get a little bit more into those geopolitical aspects and then probably I would do 10 minutes on BP and you would then be able to have to your point about what's paragraph two three and four you'd be able to do okay how far does windfall taxes get us and then what are the other options And, and you can unpack that.
3: All right. Well, for what it's worth, I'd probably do something slightly different. I probably wouldn't go with one story because I think there are too many angles to it. And I feel as though you might risk losing people. I would probably do 12 minutes at the top and break it more in the way which you described it, Turkey and Syria with the implications for each. I then probably do five on BP, five on Man City and then leave yourself eight at the end that would then try and tell you a human story that would hopefully get at something that was very close to what you suggested right at the beginning which is let's just take one picture tell the story of this man, his family and the world I would ideally say around and outside of the picture that you cannot see and who's trying to come to this man's aid and what they can or can't do. Well that's it for this week's news meeting Um, thank you to Liz to Basher to Keith for joining us thank you most of all to you for listening Um, I'm not going to be here next week and in fact the Observer columnist Sonia Soda is going to be in the editor's chair she's going to be joined by three journalists who once again are going to be trying to figure out what should lead the news what follows and why please join her and all of them next week at the news meeting If you want to get early and ad-free access, you can subscribe to Tortoise Plus on Apple Podcasts.